That's a great song. You know, I wonder how many problems we would avoid in our lives and as a church if God were, in fact, our treasure, our greatest treasure. I know for myself that all of my, <coughs> excuse me, all of my struggles stem from this one issue that I make something besides God my greatest treasure. And I say that at the outset of this morning's message because we're going to be in the next several weeks delving into the problems of another church. Sort of like watching a soap opera. And their problems, like mine, and I suspect like ours, stem from that as well. They didn't make Christ Jesus their greatest treasure. And they got off on all kinds of other things, good things, in some cases, some cases bad things, but in some cases good things, but not the greatest thing. I was also thinking as, as, uh, as I was preparing to introduce this morning's message, the conversation that a young pastor had with, a, with an older pastor, he was saying, what is it that you that you uh, liked about the ministry. The older pastor was about ready to enter retirement, and, and the older pastor says, um, ministry's great, it's just it's the people that I don't like. <laughs> it's pretty much the whole deal. And that's the issue here in Timothy as well. It's the people. They're the biggest blessing and also the biggest challenge for Timothy. And I think, we, if we're honest, we can look at ourselves and look around and say, you know what, we are God's gift to Desert Springs, and we are God's challenge at Desert Springs, all of us. Because each of us brings a certain amount of, of spiritual vitality and, and momentum and enthusiasm, and I believe that's true, but we also bring our sins to the table. And so the health of a church really does depend on us as people. And so with that ad lib introduction, I'll go to my actual introduction. Uh, we're beginning a series of sermons, as I've mentioned uh, this morning, that will teach us lessons related to being a missional church. Leadership lessons is what I have in the bulletin. And I say leadership because at the heart of every healthy church is healthy leaders. And in this sense, and in this specific sense, I believe in the trickle-down economics theory. Leadership starts at the top. Health starts at the top. And if our leaders aren't healthy, then we as a church can't be healthy. So I don't only mean a pastor. I don't only mean elders. I don't only mean deacons. I don't only mean leading women. I mean each home has leaders as well. Each household represented here as leaders. And each of us in our positions of leadership need to strive for that health. And I say lessons because I think Desert Springs is in a good position to learn some things as she is transitioning to find and to call a new pastor. And so what a better time to learn some lessons. We have a space, if you will, a, a season in which God has opened us up to teach us some things, and that's why I'm calling this Lessons in Leadership. 
and the lessons are going to be drawn from more or less 12 sections in the book of 1 Timothy. By the time we're done, I'll pretty much have covered the whole book, but it's not going to be starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 and going all the way to verse 21 of chapter 6. It's not going to be that kind of a series. The book actually isn't laid out like that either. There's, there's an order to the argument, but it's, it's um, more spread out. So that's how I'm going to be treating it. Polly and I have all of our best parenting jokes come from Bill Cosby. <laughs> and so we, we refresh ourselves on our Bill Cosby humor occasionally. And I love the line where Bill Cosby says, my children think my mother is the most wonderful person on the face of this earth. And I keep telling them, that's not the same person that raised me. <laughs> You're looking at an old person who's trying to get into heaven now. <laughs> so we're just out of Christmas, and we had lots of grandparents around, and my family has more than average. And uh, my son is just in love with his grandpa right now because my son got a, a bow and arrow for Christmas, and Grandpa Bob set him up with a, with a hay bale in the backyard and a target and, you know, one of these funky finger grip things. And he even bought him an archery lesson. So it's like, wow, you know, he's just on, on top of the world. And I learned something in, in kind of hanging, and I'm sort of sitting there kind of looking, because I'm not an archery guy at all. So I'm kind of watching this whole thing. And the guy at the archery store asked my son, are you right eye or left eye dominant? And he gave him this little tube, and the way that he'd held it up, he says, oh, you're left eye dominant. Well, he'd been shooting with his right eye. And so every one of his arrows is going, you know, shoo, off to the side. But now that he's shooting with, his, with the correct eye, man, all of his arrows are going like, if not in that first ring, in that second ring, almost every time. And so the title of this morning's sermon, I thought of that as an illustration of the title of this morning's sermon is Our Gospel-Centered Mission. And I actually put it in the form of a question. Is our mission gospel-centered? And in order for the mission to be centered on the gospel, we've got to be looking through the right eye, the correct eye. And so if we're not looking through the correct eye, every one of our arrows, every one of our efforts, all of our ministries, all of our, all of our uh, programs are going to be off the mark. And the gospel is the thing that helps us center that. And so that's why I ask, is our mission gospel-centered? Are we looking out of the true eye as we aim to do the work that God has called us to do? If we aim wrongly, then we'll always miss the target. So that's why I think Paul wrote 1 Timothy. As I was talking in Sunday school, I gave a short introduction to this sermon this morning, and I have it written out in a pro, like a one-page summary of the book. If you're interested in that, please let me know. But I think I have one other copy. But um, Paul wrote 1 Timothy not because Timothy didn't know Paul's ministry. Timothy was Paul's best friend. Timothy could finish Paul's sentences. I don't think Paul wrote 1 Timothy for Timothy. Although, as in the case of the people that mean a lot to us, it's always helpful to hear again the stories that we've heard, right? Because we never remember them exactly like they're told. 
So in that sense, I think this letter was helpful to Timothy. Paul wrote 1 Timothy for the church that Timothy was at. That's why he wrote the book, I think. You know, Timothy benefited from it, but he also could say, oh, and by the way, if you don't think that's what Paul meant, here's the letter to back it up, right? So Timothy is for the church to check her focus. It's for the church to check her, her aim. And in this, in this case, Ephesus, where Timothy is at, is having some trouble. It's off target. If you look at that first verse in, uh, of, as the book opens up in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. They're using the wrong eye, Paul's saying. Fix that. Help them adjust their sights. So I'm going to consider this theme of our gospel-centered mission in three points this morning. The first point I'll make is that the foundation is Jesus. The, the foundation of our gospel-centered mission is Jesus. And that makes sense because that's what the gospel is all about. The second point is, is that the context of our gospel-centered mission, the place that it's lived out and worked out, is a redeemed family. The context is a redeemed family. And then the third point is that the outcome or the result of our gospel-centered mission is eternal life. If we're focused on the right thing, the outcome will be eternal life. So let's look first at the foundation for our gospel-centered mission, our Jesus foundation. If you've read the pastoral epistles before, or even if you haven't, you'll notice something, and that is that it reads a little bit like a checklist. When I first started driving, or before I could get my learner's permit, I should say, my dad handed me a book, and he said, read it. And you know what it was? The car manual. <laughs> you know, that thrilling, riveting page-turner of a novel where you just can't wait to see what happens in the end. Ooh, how to change a taillight. Ooh, I just love that. Or here's how you store the jack in its compartment, right? So Timothy reads a little bit like that. It's, this, it's, it's something that you turn to when you need it, but it's not necessarily something that you read. At least that's the first impression that one might take. It's certainly nothing like Romans or Ephesians where you have this kind of... Um, artistry of words, right? Where you have what I would call foundational theology being hammered out of the kind of a, a kiln, right? It's, Paul's pulling out this, this thing that he's shaped and painted and, and he's holding it up for us to see. And it's this beautiful work of art. And it, and it has a very much a beginning and a middle and an end and a climax and all of those things. And you're learning things about God that had never been, in some ways, never been said before in just that way. Timothy is not that way. But as, and so I've been a little bit at odds with myself on how to preach this, but as I've been reading this book and preparing for the sermon, I've discovered that there is a, there is a real theology of Timothy, but, it, but you have to sort of read between the lines. You have to pay attention as you read it. And so we're going to be highlighting that as we see the foundation of our gospel-centered mission is in Jesus. Let's look again at at uh, 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 3. I just read it. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then verses 1 and 2 going up, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying that God commanded him to write and urge Timothy to stay in Ephesus and charge or order certain people not to teach different doctrine. What had they been taught by Paul? Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Apparently, there are many ways that Paul speaks of God in the New Testament, but this is the only letter where Paul refers to God as our Savior. Salvation and the salvation that comes specifically from God through the hope of Jesus Christ is the very first thing that Paul chooses to write about when he's addressing this church. They have their focus is going off to different doctrines. And Paul is saying, before we talk about anything else, we need to talk about salvation. Because the Christian faith, at the end of the day, is about salvation, which means it's about Jesus. There are teachers in Ephesus that are steering away from God our Savior and leading people away from lives of love. Look at this. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love, as defined by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament, is at the very heart of what we, of what we think about when we think about God. So Paul says this. He says the aim of our faith, and there's that word aim or focus, is love. It's God our Savior who loves us. That's what we're about. Why does he say that? Well, look. <clears throat> Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. So he's setting this up in contrast. He's saying, this is what they're doing, but this is what we should be doing, and that's love. I just did a quick <clears throat> little Bible study by myself and said, where else does Paul talk about the love of God, and what are some of the passages that we've heard before? Romans 5.8, but God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The aim of our charge is love. It's, it's the love that comes from God, and it's the love that we show to God as a result of the love that he shows to us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. Or Romans 8, 31 and 37. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The church in Ephesus was forgetting this. 
They were talking about doctrines and, and teachings and, and practices and, and little hobbies and pet theologies that, that was taking their view away from the love of God. Listen to this, Galatians 2, 20. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how we stay focused on the gospel and our mission is by remembering that the very foundation of what we do is the love of God our Savior through Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again that we might have salvation, that we might have eternal life. Without that perfect life, death, and resurrection, there is no hope that Jesus is, is able to do anything for us. And so he says, he said uh, in verse 1, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. I connect those two things. Why is Jesus our hope? It's because God the Father is our Savior. If he wasn't our Savior, then Jesus would just be another man, another teacher, another rabbi that would pass through the, the sands of history and be no more. But Jesus is our hope, capital H, and we sang about that in one of the hymns that we sang, because God is our Savior. And that is the foundation of what we are as a church. That's how we stay focused on the gospel. Another passage in this, in this book that shows us that Jesus is our foundation is in verse 13 of chapter 1. Look at that, please. Chapter 1, verse 13, uh, 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The apostle explains that he has no pastoral ministry. He is not an apostle, and he has nothing to write to them except for the overflowing grace of God in Jesus Christ. He started this church by the message of hope and eternal life through Jesus. That's the whole foundation. That's the whole program. And he's saying this, and in, in terms of the flow of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he's setting forth his credentials here, isn't he? This isn't how, what I wrote on my most recent version of my resume. I was an idiot. I blew it. I was a horrible human being. I killed people. You know, other than that, I'm a pretty good candidate. You've, you've seen the joke, right? Um, and this is appropriate for a church about to enter a search for a pastor, kind of, if the Apostle Paul applied to this pulpit, how would the search committee receive his, his resume? And, the, and the, the e it's one of those emails that gets forwarded to everybody. And as you read it, it's like, yeah, I've got a criminal record. I've been kicked out of every church I've been in, you know. <laughs> I don't think so. But look, as if that weren't enough. Oh, so I guess my point is, He's giving his resume. That's in contrast to the teachers that they're listening to. He's going, this is what it's all about. 
This is where we need to be. We need to have our foundation in Jesus. The overflow, I love that phrase, overflowing grace of God, Romans 5.21. We are, uh, uh, where sin abounds, where sin flows, grace overflows. Sin, we, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ because his grace has superabounded in our lives. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he's also saying, by implication, grace isn't overflowing in those people's lives. In those teachers' lives that are, that are causing all this dissension in your church, it's not about grace for them. It's not about the overflowing grace and mercy of God. It's about their, their hobby horse and, and their issues and their, their, their prejudices and, and, and their views and all of these things that they've got. But, and they throw Jesus in there, but that's not at the foundation for them. And if that weren't clear enough, look at the next sentence in verse 15. If you underline in your Bible, you can make a note or underline the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. That's a, that's a formula that Paul uses to say this is something that, that everybody knows. It's like the Apostles' Creed in a way. This is something that we would say in church all together. That's, that's what he's saying. It's, it's letting you know that that's what's coming. It says it's worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world. That's why he came, is because we're sinners in need of overflowing mercy. So the foundation of our gospel-centered mission is Jesus. It makes me think of, of the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. All to him I owe. And just quickly, uh, another example verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. There's that phrase again, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. This is the mission of the church, my friends. God desires people to be saved. That's what this is about. It's about salvation. It's about redemption. It's about deliverance. It's about passing from death into life. It's not about arguments and, and petty bickerings over this topic or that topic or the other topic. Sort of, what is it? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And they weren't doing that in Ephesus. There's another hymn in First Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen of angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Who is that? It's Jesus. This is the center of the book of First Timothy, and Jesus is at the center. Every line of that poem is about Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of our gospel centered mission. So we've seen this, and I, I hope I've beat that into the ground. Why? They were off track. We can easily get off track. In fact, maybe we are. I think each of us should ask ourselves, how well am I doing in staying centered on the mission through Jesus Christ? How well are we doing as a church in that? That's why I put the title in the form of a question. 
because I want you to answer it. My second point is the context of our gospel-centered mission is the redeemed family. I was thinking about this. You know, the church gets a lot of bad press today. Would you agree? In the media? I wonder, what kind of press reports are we sending out? I'm the kind of guy that blames the media sometimes. I'll admit it. But then I have to step back and think, what kind of press releases am I sending? Oh, I may not actually send a press release, but my life releases updates. Like you could subscribe to my life, you know, like you subscribe to a blog, kind of get those syndicated updates every now and then in your inbox. Every time you see me, you're getting a little bit of an update. And I work hard to make sure that the update that you see is very nice. But you know as well as I do that human beings are only so good at keeping the the poison of their sin inside, and it sort of ekes out in ways that we don't expect. <clears throat> we're sending press releases, my friends. The media is picking up on it because we're sending it out. <clears throat> I think we ought to ask ourselves the question, are we focused on the gospel because the, um, or rather is the media's bias biased in part because we've helped them to be that way? As I thought about this, I thought, you know, the gathering that we have in this place is such a tiny fraction of our overall spiritual lives. Am I right on that? I mean, just even in terms of time, we've got 90 minutes. If you, if you don't come to Sunday school, you've got, we've said, this service goes from 1030 to noon. Then if we hang out a little bit longer, it might stretch out to 100. Maybe you've got, a, maybe you've got an appointment today. You've got a bolt before the end of the service. Maybe you're not here today, in which case you're not listening to me, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we don't necessarily, we don't necessarily make it every Sunday, and the, the faithful ones that do make it every Sunday, even the best ones is from maybe 9.15 to like 12.30. That's a tiny fraction of the time of your week. And then how much of that is spiritually enriching? I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's a fact. That's, that's, that's what it means to be a human being. We can't kind of get that kind of enrichment. And if you're like my family, we drive a bit to get here. My spiritual life is so much greater than what happens in this building. There's so much more than this. So to my second point, the redeemed but still sinful people of God are like rejected but now adopted kids into a big foster home run by Jesus. And this is the only time for a lot of us that we see our fellow foster kids. It's hard then to develop the kind of redeemed family relationships that set the context or the backdrop for staying focused on the gospel. Am I, am I communicating here? If I only saw my wife once a week for an hour and a half, it would be hard to cultivate a marriage of intimacy. And the intimate 
interconnectedness of a redeemed family requires that level along the lines of a healthy marriage, that kind of interaction. And so when I say go to community group, I'm just getting started with you all, right? I mean, a community group is just getting us out of the red zone, kind of to zero. For this to be a healthy, redeemed family of adopted kids in Jesus' foster home, which is what we are called to be. Oh, and, and by the way, staying focused on the gospel mission means that other people get to come into our families, into this family, other foster kids that don't have a home, and feel welcome. And if we're not good at making each other feel welcome, how good will we be to invite others into that? That's my question. It's kind of like a stressed out mom or dad who isn't comfortable with the neighborhood's, neighborhood kids coming over because the kitchen's a mess or because we don't want to get anything on the carpet or because we're fighting. Or if I can use a graphic example, there's a limit if, if if you're a person that's abused, physically abused, and you have bruises on your arm or on your face, you're not feeling very welcoming to other people. <coughs> now, abuse happens in churches. It happens in little ways and big ways. And we need to ask ourselves, are we a healthy, redeemed family of broken but being healed sinners that are Jesus' foster kids? Because it's in the context of those kinds of relationships, I think, that we are able to stay focused on the gospel mission. Now that's all preaching, but it is what Paul says several times in this letter. 1 Timothy 1.16 I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Read, poster child for salvation. If God can help this guy, he can help anybody. Now, how many of us are willing to do that? To kind of open up and share our testimony and let people know just how busted up we are. Guess what happens when we do? Other people say, I would fit right in in that place. This is a redeemed family we're talking about. 1 Timothy 1.18 This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about, about you. Paul is like a dad to Timothy. You know, pastors and elders are like dads. They're foster dads. And they... They welcome foster kids into the home and, and leading women in the church are like foster moms and, and literally sinners and busted up foster kids, rejects, cling to the motherhood and the fatherhood of healthy, redeemed, saved by overflowing grace, men and women in the church. That's how it works. And if we're so broken ourselves that we can't look out of ourselves to see anybody else we're not going to be focused on the mission of the gospel. We will not. Paul is, and that's why he can call Timothy his child, I think. 1 Timothy 3.5 
In this checklist about elders, Paul says, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how in the heck can he care for the household of God? Translation, you've got to be a healthy dad. I used to think that meant that my kids have to be perfect. Uh-uh. It means that I have to know how to live in God's grace because my kids need to see that in me. They need to be able to model that. I'm photocopying my life for my kids. Is this a man that goes to the cross when he's hurt, when he's confused, and when he's needy? Is this a man, to go back to my first point, whose foundation of his life is Jesus? That's what it means to manage your household, I think. That's what it means to manage the household of God as well. And Paul makes this explicit in 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So, a couple quick applications here. One, we need to be intentional about bringing in new foster kids. How can we stay focused on the gospel, which is our mission as a church, if we're not intentional about that? If we're so wrapped up in our own stuff, how on earth can we have guests over? Another application of this is our lives, and I've mentioned this, are read like books by outsiders. There is a significant emphasis in 1 Timothy on what others perceive is going on in your life. Again and again, Paul says to have a good reputation with outsiders. That isn't that they need to see that you're perfect or that you have a, a good testimony. That means that they see that you're human. Human, my friends. That you're a human being. And that, yes, you struggle with this and that and you have questions, but praise God, he has saved you. You are part of a redeemed family. And the third application is, households don't fight when they're centered and founded upon Jesus. That's just a fact. If you want some, some good reading along these lines, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Again and again, he says, you may not relate to each other directly without a mediator. Husbands and wives and parents and children, you need to relate to each other via Christ. I come to my wife through Christ. She comes to me through Christ. It's through her relationship with Jesus that she's able to have the strength to interact with me. If she doesn't start with Jesus, she has no hope with me. She would run away and scream in despair. Hmm. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Okay, so we've seen the foundation is Jesus. That's our foundation. How do we stay centered on the gospel? First, we need a Jesus at the foundation. What's the context? How do we, how do we live out our gospel-centered mission? What's that context? A redeemed family. Remember that? A foster family. This is a, a foster home of kids that have been rejected but have found a place that they fit. That's what this is. It's a redeemed family. And what's the result? When we're founded on Jesus, when we're, when, we're being, when we're healthy and existing in a wonderful, redeemed family, and I love these stories of these foster homes where like 20, 30, 40 kids have been through, 
And it's like, man, why couldn't my home have that much joy and happiness in it? Have you ever, I've wondered that. How can, how can, and it's because, it's because I think that there's something of the gospel hope in that situation, if not expressly, then implicitly. And our family is growing in that, I think. But the result of all of that is eternal life. That's my final point. Paul returns in this letter again and again to the end of the show, the end of, of the story, as a way of saying, again, it's like this aiming principle that I started out with. If this is where we're headed, then this is what we need to do along the way. 1 Timothy 1.16 But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as an example to those who were to believe unto eternal life. Eternal life is the whole goal. So that I, I, I get eternal life. I experience eternal life, as Jesus says in John 3, now. I experience it now. It's not just a future hope. I'm experiencing it now. And then others get to experience it now. Eternal life is the result of, these, of this kind of mission. And it's so exciting for Paul that in this text here, after he says this, he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He's so stoked about eternal life. It's such a huge magnet for him and everything that he does that he has to break forth in praise. Have you ever been in one of those situations where somebody tells you something and it's so exciting you just start jumping up and down or you do something really silly that you don't want people to, to see? Or you start clapping like a little kid or, or you know, you squeak. Everybody has their own thing that they do and they sort of lose it. That's like at a basketball game, you know, high fives. Oops, you hit them in the head. But who cares? You know, we're winning. This is what Paul does. He's so excited about eternal life. I'm convicted by that. It's interesting that, that Paul says this in contrast to the false teachers of Ephesus. Can we, can we use a little sanctified imagination? Yeah, eternal life. But I've got some really great arguments for you. You know, he's, he's intentionally setting these things against each other to show what they're doing is really, really off track of the mission of the gospel. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 7, 5 to 7. Christ Jesus, who uh, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teachers of the, teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was appointed to teach and preach the gospel, to call the Ephesian church and inspire Timothy to call the Ephesian leadership to say centered on the gospel. By doing so, he's teaching the Gentiles in faith and truth. And Jesus lived died and rose again at the proper time, Paul says. Did you catch that phrase? At the proper time. And guess what? Now it's Paul's time. It's the proper time for Paul to remind Timothy of these things. And now it's Timothy's time to remind the Ephesian elders and the Ephesian Christians to remember these things. 
and fast forward about 2,000 years. Now it's our time and my time carrying on the ministry of the apostles by teaching not new doctrine, not weird doctrine, not complicated doctrine, but the simple truth that Jesus died to save sinners. And the end result is eternal life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I was going to read this long section, but I won't. I'll read a, a bit of it. Second half of verse 2, right before verse 3, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, by the way, that word sound evokes a full-orbed spiritual health. Those are the words we need, sound words. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, which is Paul's catchphrase for the whole Christian life. Godliness is, is a way that he describes it. He's puffed up with conceit and so on and so forth. And then he gets into a, an exhortation about money, which I won't read because I, I realize it's been convicting enough already. 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of what? Eternal life. That's the result to which you were called and about which you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until when? The appearing of Jesus, eternal life, not just me personally, but the whole redeeming of the whole universe. The end result, if we stay focused on the message of the gospel with Jesus at its foundation in the context of the redeemed family is that we are going to be players in the great redemptive development of God's plan for the whole universe, which we will see. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Come quickly. I want to see that. In conclusion, we've seen that the aim that we take depends on our being centered in the correct eye. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, though I think Timothy already knows most of this. He's writing him to remind him, to inspire him, and to give him confidence with the hard work before him in dealing with the false teachers, and if I, if I may use the vernacular, the goofy ones, right? These are, these are teaching some goofy things, and Paul is writing to deal with that, to help Timothy in that ministry. Hopefully you've heard me, I haven't said it expressly, but hopefully you've heard me define exactly what our mission is. Jesus gave up his life as a ransom for all, that all might be saved. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. That is our mission. That is the gospel. That is salvation. It's deliverance. It means rescuing broken, lost, poor, wicked sinners who, like Paul, was acting in ignorance. The church is a ragtag bunch of misfits been brought into a redeemed foster family called, irony of ironies, to display the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he loves it when we do this. 
The Father loves it when we are faithful in this work. And it grieves him. It grieves the Father as it grieved Paul, who was a servant of the Father, when we get off on lesser things. When I was in college, I had a professor who on the first day of class gave kind of a pep talk on grades. And he said, if you aim for the edge of the target, you're bound to miss. I actually dropped that class after that first day. Um, but that's beside the point. It's good advice. <laughs> I just switched targets, that's all. It is good advice. Let's not aim for the edge of the target. Let's aim for the middle, for the bullseye, where the mission of the gospel is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to be reminded and hopefully stirred up and inspired to be the people you've called us to be. It's hard work. But we have Paul, by your Holy Spirit, to lead us over the next many weeks as we think about being a missional church centered on gospel leadership. Lord, be our teacher as you've taught us this morning. Continue to teach us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.